Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I hope you're enjoying these conversations as much as I am. I am learning so much from the different leaders that I have the honor of interviewing on Partnering Leadership Podcast. This week, I have a chance to share with you the conversation I had with A. Scott Bolden. Scott is the current managing partner of the Washington, D.C. office of Reed Smith and was former at-large member on the executive committee of the firm. He has been nationally acclaimed as an attorney. He's a political commentator. He gets involved in discussing race, politics, law on CNN, Jake Tapper, Rachel Maddow show. Scott does it all. He has also been former chairman of the D.C. Chamber of Commerce, was the chairman of the D.C. Democratic Party, and has been very involved in various organizations around town. He's also involved with his college, Morehouse College, and Howard Law School, where he's an alumni and a distinguished one at that, having won awards at both of those institutions. So I can't wait to share the conversation I had with Scott. Make sure to share this podcast with a friend or a colleague, PartneringLeadership.com. And when you get a chance, especially on the Apple Podcasts, put a rating and review, and I personally really appreciate that. Now, here is my conversation with A. Scott Bolden. Scott Bolden, welcome to Partnering Leadership. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Tell me, whereabouts did you grow up, Scott, and how did that impact who you became? I grew up in Joliet the first 18 years before I went to Morehouse College and then later to Howard Law School. And I grew up watching my dad try cases all over the state of Illinois. And it was not only a great influence on me, the first time I saw him try a case in Southern Illinois, where he and I were the only people of color in the courtroom in the late 60s, I knew that that's what I wanted to do, to try cases and to defend the defenseless and to, and to really follow in his footsteps. And so I developed a passion for it, watching him try cases and even watching him hear cases as a judge later. That's magnificent, Scott. And that shows why you ended up becoming so successful in the practice of law. What are a couple of parts of your journey that you found most significant in your growth as an attorney? I am the most accidental lawyer and a partner at a big law firm, perhaps in the history of big law. I grew up watching my dad try cases, as I said, and my goal was to go to law school, go to New York to be a prosecutor, to learn how to try cases. I was going to go back home to Joliet, probably Chicago, because Joliet was way too small for me, and to try cases, have my own firm, just like my dad, maybe run for office at some point in time, and then have a life of law and politics and kind of operate and just influence and make my community better at the intersection of politics and law. That being said, uh, I still try to do that, but what happened was I left New York. I was scheduled to come to DOJ for a position in the Civil Rights Division. 
Uh, there was a hiring freeze. This is under Bush one. There was a hiring freeze. My first wife was a Schedule C appointee under Bush one, worked with Jack Kemp. And so I spent the first six months here in Washington in 1991. I was unemployed. I was watching Bewitched and the Flintstones, trying to figure out. And I had like 50 trials. I tried 50 cases in New York, in New York and I, for whatever reason, I was just taking my time once the hiring freeze was on. I bust tables at the Marriott out on Pooks Hill Run Road. Many people know where that is. I, I wash cars in Rockville, Maryland, not using my law degree at all. <laughs> I mean, in fact, I dumbed my law degree down because I couldn't find a job on the legal side. For whatever reason, I just thought I was taking a break from everything. That didn't sit too well with my first wife. <laughs> and so I did these, these odd jobs during the week. It, it was an incredible, incredibly educational, an incredible educational experience for me because my resume didn't say I was barred in three jurisdictions and that I had tried 50 cases. I was just an average Joe, however you define an average Joe, Bussing tables and washing cars. It was awful too, by the way. I was awful at both of those jobs. And so <laughs> I always, I always, the, the guys in the uh, hotel and restaurant business, the guys at the car wash, they never will know why I tipped them so much. I do. I tipped them extra because I've been there. Now that was a long time ago. That was some 30 plus years ago. But I tipped them extra now because I was so bad at it. I got fired from both jobs. And the other thing was that I got treated, let's just say I knew enough about employment law and labor law to know that I was being abused in this process. But like my colleagues, I felt I was powerless because had I raised my voice and started talking about the law, either no one would have believed me or I would have, I, I, I would have the gig was up, <laughs> but I had no legal job. So I kept quiet for my own reasons, but uh, those are tough blue collar positions and the men and women that do them just go through quite a bit actually. And I just, uh, I feel for them, but they'll never know because I used to be there, you know? I would bring home a hundred dollar check or $200 if I had worked overtime and, and whatever tips I could get. It was a great motivator for me to go back and start practicing law again. <laughs> You know, it's, it sounds like you had a lot of memories. You have a lot of memories. You don't want to go back to those days, but a lot of lessons you learned besides the fact that you don't want to do those jobs ever again. What else did you learn from having to do those blue collar jobs before then you transitioned to practicing as an attorney again? Using my mind and my brain is uh, far less onerous, sometimes more difficult, sometimes not sometimes less difficult, but my true passion, whether I took a break from it or not, was, was trying cases, practicing law. The reason I called myself an accidental partner at a big law firm, now a managing partner, is because in a million years, my dad could not fathom me doing what I'm doing now, practicing law, very high bill of law rate, generating millions of dollars in legal fees, because when he came along, the opportunities for people of color, African-American lawyers simply wasn't there. I remember when my father, when I graduated from Howard Law School, I told my dad while we were walking off stage that I chose this profession to be just like him. 
And I remember him whispering to me and, and, and telling me in no certain terms that my goal should always be to be better than him. And I thought it was strange that he would say that because I thought he was the best. He said, oh, I'm the best, but you have the best opportunities ahead of you. Do not waste them. And like any father to any son, whatever race, creed, or color, I realized then that our parents want us to be better than them and that it's okay to want to be better than them, no matter how high or successful or how much money they make or don't make. He was a civil rights activist. He was head of the NAACP. He had huge impact on the desegregation of schools and hospitals and restaurants during the mid-60s and late-60s in our community, if you will, in Joliet, Will County, Illinois. And so I keep that story handy because whenever I'm having a great day or not so great day in big law, I remember that he did not have those opportunities and that I owe him and my Howard Law professors and my Morehouse political science professors a debt of excellence, not just standing on their shoulder, but every day I need to think about excellence. I need to think about achieving I ought to think about making a difference. And that really motivates and drives me on a daily basis. There's really nothing else to it other than, of course, needing to pay bills. But I really do. And I tell young people and the lots of mentees that I've had over the years that the first beginning or the first start to success is believing in yourself, having a love supreme, a supreme love of self, and to be focused, to have your game plan. But at the base of every game plan you have for achieving success in whatever profession you choose, has got to be thinking and striving and believing in excellence every day. Every day you get up, every day I get up, and I think about excellence. And whether I'm excellent that day or not in the courtroom or with my law partners at Reed Smith, I manage a hundred of them, whether I'm not my best with clients, at least every day I'm striving for it. And it manifests itself, not just through my overall success, but my daily success, even if I'm not excellent, if I don't achieve what I want to achieve, it is self-motivating that I go back the next day. I'm always thinking about success and excellence, and I'm always thinking about it on a daily basis. And I've always thought that that kept me at the top of the law game, whether I fail or succeed on any given day. But I got to be thinking about it. Because that's the bucket. That's the space I want to be in, what I want to be known for as excellent in in practicing law and representing clients, obtaining great results. And obviously, we bill a lot. And so we we, we get paid a lot of money at a big law firm. But with that comes the demand of excellence, too. And so I'm just excited about my 30-year career. I've been doing law for 35 years, 30 at Reed Smith. And I just, I'm blessed, if you will. I never take the full claim for my success because I know how special my career has been, and I want others to draw from it. But I'm, I'm humble enough, and I'm not known for humility, but I'm humble enough to know that I did not do this by myself. I have a lot of family support and uh, a lot of support in God, from God, and my faith. I've got to give those three or four people, if you will, uh, credit. And I, I fully get that every day. I'm thankful. And what brilliant insights, Scott. You have been tremendously successful and tremendously impactful in your career. So that's great advice for aspiring leaders to try to strive for that excellence that you have worked on for all these years. In addition to your law career, you have also been significant with respect to our community 
giving back to the community and having an impact in community. What has driven you to that end? My mother, who narrated my journey to manhood, I learned to be a man from my father. And I always say my mother narrated that journey to manhood. She would often say that no matter how successful, and she's she's no longer with us, she died at the early age of 57 suddenly, but she still lives in my heart, of course, and I certainly talk to her every day like all of all sons do. But she would always say that, you know, if all you're doing is making money and living a great life, then you're only living 50% of your life. The other 50% is giving back and making sure you lead this community, your community, the broader community, what have you, that if you're not leaving that in a better place, if you're not impacting it in a powerful and positive way, then you're only living 50% of your life. I've never forgotten that. Obviously, going to Morehouse College, a training ground for leadership for African-American men from all over the world, and then Howard Law School, the Mecca, the historical black colleges, and the laboratory for the civil rights movement in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and even now, that training ground for service and leadership is, is just really a part of my DNA. I had that growing up, of course, but I've really structured it and accentuated it at these two institutions of higher academic learning. And so I really don't see it as as much of a choice in the matter, whether it's impacting politics, community, big law, the industry. Leadership is a calling. We're all called to leadership. It's how it manifests itself and how we choose to manifest it. It's not always easy. In fact, it's difficult. But to speak up, to speak out, to share my voice, to share my views of the world, if those follow it, whether I'm doing media, political analysis, legal analysis, or just being active in my community, I'm not afraid to share my voice because I believe in what I say. I believe others believe in it. And I think others can not only learn from it, but they can teach me about how to be a better person, but also a better leader. And I've always been open to that because in Washington, (laughs) let me tell you something, I practice law with and against some of the greatest lawyers of our time. I do. It's right here in the, the academics, the diplomats, the elected officials, the power base of the White House and the Senate and the House. A lot of times we take for granted what a powerful city this is, or enclave, or, or future state, if you will, is. It's powerful. And there are multi-talented people here who are just great leaders. And we learn from each other, we pull from each other, and then we lead with each other. We do. And so the opportunities are endless here. And I've always loved living in Washington because of those, those factors. And you have been tremendously successful, again, in all aspects of life, Scott. Looking at it, though, have you had setbacks in your career that have taught you both humility and how to be a more effective and better leader and person? None that I claim. Next. <laughs> I told you I was, I was working on my humility. I didn't say I was there yet. <laughs> my buddies watching this will say, are you kidding me? You know, you know what's interesting? Humility and humbleness is certainly a powerful of personal characteristics we should all have. In litigation and trial work and the law game, it's perceived, and I, I believe it, you know, to be that. You can be a gentleman, but to, to express humility or humbleness doesn't always reward you. It should, you know. 
And so I always chuckle when my friends say, Scott, we got work on you, you military. <laughs> but, but, and they're still working. I mean, great mentors and still hang in there with me. But, you know, it's hard to shift buckets after a while. And so oftentimes I, I don't, but I should. And I'm, I'm working on that. But one of my greatest setbacks and something that humbled me in a very positive way, in 2006, I ran for office after heading up the D.C. Democratic Party and the D.C. Chamber of Commerce. And gosh, I was so ready. I always wanted to run for office. I always wanted to serve. I always thought that I could govern and, and lend my ideas and leadership to public service. And the voters of Washington, D.C., it was a citywide at large race. The voters of Washington decided that they really wanted me to practice law, not lead or govern. <laughs> and, and I did not reject their notion. I, I accepted it humbly. <laughs> I had no choice in the matter. However, I will say this, around that time, that humbled me. Around that same time after the election, I took three or four months off from the firm, really thought about doing something else because I was so disappointed. My 19-year-old daughter, who was six months pregnant, came into my life. I had never met her. I did not know she existed, at least not in, in, in that way. And that was tremendously humbling. And I put those two together because I wrote about finding my daughter. The piece from the Washington Post magazine, you may have seen it years ago, was called Becoming Shayla's Father. And it was a fearless piece, probably the most authentic piece I've ever written. And I do a fair amount of writing now, but I was authentic about it. And I talked about my successes, my failures. I talked about my fears. I, I kind of just kind of wanted to, in a cathartic way, clear what people were saying, doing, and even the doubts about myself. You know, we all have doubts. We're all at various times having inferiority complexes that we either ignore or don't listen to. And I'm no different. But authenticity and integrity and speaking and thinking became my mantra. And it came from that election loss. It came from me finding my daughter and facing my failures as an absentee father, regardless of blame and fact and what have you. But it really made me a better man. It made me a better father to my other two daughters. And the three of them wound up in Atlanta at the same time. They, they, they grew up together, even though their sister was, their older sister was about 10 years older plus. And I'm so proud of their relationship and their friendship. And my granddaughter, is now a freshman at Stevenson College outside of Baltimore in Maryland. And I go and get her and spend the weekend with her, with my family, me and Erica, and uh, Cole, my bonus son, and uh, my second wife. And uh, it taught me to appreciate family at an incredible level that I never valued. You know, it was always money, business, and politics. But humility and facing your demons and being authentic and having integrity about it is more powerful, along with faith in God, more powerful than any money or business or political situation I've ever been in. And so I'm still at the intersection of money, business, and politics and the law, no doubt about it. But I choose to be there with value in my family and valuing what I've learned from my failures. You know, for me, every success, and I've had many, following every success has been failure for me. And following every failure has been success. Uh, I don't look forward to the failures, but nothing ventured, nothing gained, and leaders are going to fail. 
But when you're successful and you change the life of others around you in a powerful way, it's hard to forget about that. And even when you fail, I learn more from my failures in business, law, and politics than I do from my successes. That's a much longer discussion, but I really embrace those philosophies and I just don't fear failure anymore. I used to. I wanted to be that perfect lawyer, that perfect business leader. I wanted to keep that mask on that we all wear. And taking it off was not only liberating and freeing me up to be fearless, but I think it made me a better leader and a better human being. We'll see. I'm still evolving. And Scott, you can tell your friends that you truly have that humility and that authenticity. <laughs> And this example actually shows it, that you have faced up to these challenges and you have become all the better for it. I hope so. I certainly hope so. Scott, if you were to give advice to young, aspiring version of yourself, you know, when you rewind back and think about yourself at Morehouse or even when you went to Howard Law, what advice would you have to that young Scott Bolden? Well, the sky is the limit. And you've got to think like that. You're going to have doubts. Believe in yourself. One of my mother's other favorite sayings, she's on my mind today for some reason, but she would say, don't ever allow someone else to define who you are. It is a powerful emotion to keep within your self-esteem, your love of self. Don't ever delegate that to anyone else. It's too powerful. And secondly, or lastly, I would say another one of her favorite sayings was to not to hate. That hate is too important of an emotion to waste it on someone that you don't like. You let that sit in for a minute. Let that sink in. It's very true. And it's not a spiritual saying. It is really, but it really isn't. Hate is too powerful an emotion in the human condition to waste it on someone you don't like. And what she's really saying is that when you say you hate somebody, you don't really hate them. You may not like them. But if you're going to say you hate somebody, my goodness, they, that's, <laughs> they're right there with the devil. And very few of us, even our enemies, even our haters, and God bless them too, deep down, we don't hate them. We may not like them. But in Washington, relationships are forever forming. You got to be careful about who you label as your enemy, because there are no permanent friends or enemies. There are only permanent interests. And who you fight with the first five years of your life, they may be on the same side of the issue in another five to 10 years. Be careful. Beautifully put, beautifully put. Now, when you think about, obviously, your parents had significant impact on your thinking. You've talked about your father. You've talked about your mother. Are there any other role models or leadership sources that you have looked at that you've gained from over the years that stick in your mind? There are a lot of black partners at big law firms who have worked with me and tried to mentor me, and I've listened to them, but I charted my own course. I looked at their success, great lawyers who happen to be African-American. My partners at Reed Smith, who were not necessarily African-American, I stand on all of their shoulders. And I'm not going to start naming them because they know who they are, because I will leave someone out because of my, my memory or my brain fog. But 
I've taken a little bit from each of them, whether they believe it or not. <laughs> They'll see later that I really did listen to them. But for me, growing a multiple, you know, multi-million dollar law practice nationwide now, I really believe a name recognition was really important. I used to say to them and myself, if I really am the best trial lawyer and litigator in the world, and you got to believe that in yourself to believe in yourself, then how's somebody going to call me if they have a problem if they don't know my name? And I got a lot of different answers. I mean, lawyers at, at big law firms are typically very conservative. They, they avoid the press and the limelight. I was very different. <laughs> I ran to the limelight. And, and I was comfortable in that limelight. I was comfortable with the press because it was a pathway for me to success. You know, sometimes my critics would say, the press is just using you, Scott. And I said, maybe. I'm using them too. A fair exchange has never been larceny. You remember Council Member Charlene Drew Jarvis said that to me when I was head of the Chamber of Commerce, when we were passing some regulatory legislation that was very difficult to get passed. She said, a fair, a fair exchange has never been larceny. I love that saying. And I love her too, for that matter. She's a She's like a political godmother to me and so many of us. But that's one of her favorite sayings, and I remind her of that whenever I'm with her. And we both get a chuckle out of it. But I took something from everybody, including those who were not my supporters or those who were my critics. I took something from all of them, you know? I believe in keeping your critics close. You can learn something from them. Don't reject your critics outright because they're talking about what they see and feel and hear. And you can disagree with them, but keep them close because you can learn best from your critics, not from your supporters. <laughs> and you have, Scott, rather than following anyone else's path, you have set your own path, which is a big part of your success over all these years. Obviously, you're way too young to be thinking about legacy. I know you have many more years to go. But if we reflect back on it years from now, decades from now, what would you like Scott Bolden's legacy to be, both within law, within this region? What would be your legacy, Scott? To be considered one of the best to have ever done it in the law, in business, and even politics. I still do a lot of political stuff. It's just behind the scenes now. So to be the best, to be respected for my work and my legacy of leadership that I left, not just to the region, but this country. And I'd also like to be remembered for leaving the region in a much better place, whether it was passing regulatory legislation for what we used to call what I termed the dirty dozen, which were the 12 most anti-competitive business regulations in the country. That was 20 plus years ago. We're still trying to get it right, but we passed a lot of good legislation for that. My political support for leaders in this region, whether it's volunteer or advice and counsel or you know financial contributions. And then being a real trailblazer at Reed Smith, being one of the first lawyers of color to be managing partner of a really important office in the firm, to being an excellent lawyer who happens to be African-American and served on the executive committee worldwide. Uh, and with this higher level of consciousness that law firms and corporate America is finding in regard to Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd and, and creating racial equity action plans 
I think it's timely. And my work may have been the precursor to that, but I'm going to continue to participate in it because this is what so many of us who have been fighting for for so long, my work's not done. It's just getting started. And this is the good part. This is the good part. We're going to lock arms with our, with our white brothers and sisters now, and we can move forward together. I have no doubt about it. I welcome their consciousness. Don't get me wrong. I have no negative energy. I got none but positive energy because now I got my white brothers and sisters moving forward with me. They're on the front line out here demanding justice. They're in corporate America demanding equality for us. And as my grandmother used to say, now we cook it. We, we can't let this moment pass. We cook it now. We cook it. And if we let this seminal moment pass, then we will have failed each other. And I know they don't want to fail African-Americans, and they don't want to fail me. And I certainly don't want to fail them now that we have the, the highest level of consciousness and the strength of, of all Americans behind us. We got to take full advantage of it. We got to take full advantage of it. And whatever your race, creed, or color is, we welcome you. We lock arms because we're only going to change it and make America better together. So now we move forward. You got to love that, man. I love it. I love it. I, I think we can get it done. I'm excited about it. And I'm locking arms with as many business leaders as I can to say, let's get it done. Let's get it done. You have been a trailblazer, Scott. And in this last couple of sentences, I hear a challenge you're throwing down to everyone that this is the moment for us to lock arms and really change the environment, make a real difference. That's right. And the dialogue. We need a national dialogue on race relations. I talk about none of us born with the racism gene. So why do we have systemic underlying racism? It's because generations of kids are being taught this in their environment. God forbid at home, but unfortunately at home, because none of us are born with these racism genes. And other than the pigment of, of my skin and the pigment of your skin, that's really the only difference. And so locking arms and going forward, this national dialogue whereby we are free and tolerant and forgiveness, accountable, but we need to have this dialogue. We live in two worlds, one black, one white, and that's really our biggest problem. Even well-meaning people that don't look like you and me have grown up with this privilege and this sense of superiority. Now, that's okay, but you're not giving up anything. If you don't look like me, you're not giving up anything to share and to empower me and to, to make that walk towards equality. You're not giving anything up, okay? I'm not angry as, uh, as a person of color. I'm not going to go back 400 years and blame you. But I will blame you if you got a chance to fix it with me and we don't fix it. Now, that's the message. Any other message, I can't support because I can't do it without you, my brother. I can't do it without people that don't look like me. And together, we have the power to change it. And, and that's what I'm going to be about. And that's what I am about. And moving forward, we've got to take advantage of this moment. Scott, you started out with the conversation that you looked at your father after graduating from Howard Law and saying, I want to one day be as good as you. And your father told you, no, you are going to be better. And what you are doing is living up to that expectation that your father had set by striving for excellence, which you've done throughout your career. 
and making sure our world, our community is all the better because of you standing on the legacy and on the shoulders of people like your father that fought battles in their time. Now we have battles to fight in our time. Growing up with my father, there were a couple things that when you're marching and protesting and picketing, you know, I grew up in a very Afrocentric home. I mean, the civil rights movement, and he was a lawyer and head of the NAACP. Uh, a couple things that lead me to this issue of locking arms and moving forward together is we were not allowed, no matter what we were called at school or in marches, negative comments, phrases, the N-word while we were on the picket line, we were not allowed to hate anybody because of the color of their skin. We were not raised to hate people that don't look like us, no matter what they said or did or whatever their philosophy was. Because my mother and father were very clear with me and my brothers and sisters that what we were fighting was, was bigger, better, and brighter than all of us. And we were fighting for justice and freedom and equality, but that if we hated someone that didn't look like us because of the color of their skin, we were no better than them. And the depth and substance of our fight would be hollow. And so explaining that to young kids, and she did it in a, in a very basic way, we were just to the point where we would be criticized or we would be chastised or even disciplined if my mother and father saw any of that, even in our private discussions at the house. And so that forms the basis of this. The other thing was, as activists of a, of a lawyer and civil rights leader, as my father was, lawyers and judges that didn't look like him respected him a great deal. They were Republicans, but he had a way about himself where he was demonstrated strength. He demonstrated, he, he spoke the truth to power. They may not like what he said, but they could work with him. And if they couldn't work with him, he would litigate the issue with them. I mean, he was just a powerful presence of intellect, of authenticity, integrity, presentation. He was very believable and very persuasive. And those two aspects of his life for a while kind of confused me because if you're fighting, you know, the other side that doesn't look like you, you can lapse into those spaces that we weren't allowed to go into. And obviously, as I got older, I really, really understood it. It was difficult for him sometimes. He would come home and complain and yell and scream. And my mother and he would have significant arguments about the civil rights movement. Were we going to follow the philosophy of Malcolm X or Martin Luther King? Were we going to mesh them together like most of us really deeply believed after a while? And then when both were killed, where do we go from here? And so I've been seeped in the civil rights movement, man, and, and the equality argument, the, the racial equality discussion and philosophies for most of my life, for 50 years. I'm 58. And so my thoughts on this have been baked in over those 50 years, starting with my mother and father. And God bless them, because I think it's made me a, a better lawyer, but a better human being. I work with my white counterparts, whether we're on the same side or not in litigation, as well as I do with people that look like me. And it's a, it's a real blessing because I learned that from my parents. 
And you're carrying on the torch beautifully for their legacy and for impact. Yeah, thank you very much. On behalf of everyone that listens to Partnering Leadership Podcast, Scott, I really appreciate finding out a little bit more about your background and your history. And I'm inspired as you lead the charge for a better future for all of us, our kids and their kids. Thank you very much, Scott Bolden. Thank you. We're going to do it together, man. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.